1: Hi, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host for this 50-minute hour. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Sheldon Bach regarding his latest publication, The How-To Book for Students of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, published um, by Karnak. Dr. Bach has been in private practice and working as a clinician for over 50 years. He is um on the faculty of the New York Freudian Society, the NYU Postdoc in Psychoanalysis, as well as the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research in New York City. He's published many important articles, particularly those um, on sadomasochism and on narcissism, um, which many consider to be uh, classics in the field. His publications include, um, or books include, The Language of Perversion and the Language of Love, Narcissistic States and the Therapeutic Process, um, as well as today's uh publication that we will um, be discussing with him. Dr. Bach is a is a well loved um, um, teacher um in psychoanalysis and uh so many of his students um who I am um friendly with said, oh, he was just such a wonderful person to study with. So I'm very um, happy to um, get to know him a little bit today and to introduce um, the listening audience to his thinking and ideas. We're here today with uh, Dr. Sheldon Bach to talk about his new book, um, The How-To Book for Students of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, uh, published uh, very recently by Karnak, um, and we're very pleased to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, so uh, I have a lot of different questions, and um, I, uh, I guess it, I've never seen a how-to book um, that has to do with psychoanalysis, and I wanted to talk to you about putting together the idea of a how-to, like there's how to um you know put up crown molding <laughs> and, and i really smiled when i said wow here's a how-to book for um students of psychoanalysis and and psychotherapy uh, what what prompted you to to decide to put this book together and to write this book
2: yeah
0: well i, I explain this in the book but uh it's rather simple, uh, in the course of teaching, and I've done lots of teaching at lots of different institutes for decades now. Uh, often students ask questions, and, uh, I got in the habit because sometimes they said, you know, that's too much to hold in mind. Would you send us an email or write us something? So I'd write out a couple of little paragraphs for them and send it out, usually by email these days. And uh, so that was the skeleton for the book. One day, uh, somebody was looking over something, and they said, why don't you put this in a book? And I thought, that's a good idea. Uh, So that's how it happened. I mean, it it was done very quickly. It it, uh, didn't take too long to do over a summer. And uh, that's how it
2: happened. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it's the the kind of book that... um I was uh, telling um colleagues and friends um in the field about it and I said you know it's it's one of those books that you want to put it under your pillow <laughs> and take in um the the sort of pearls of wisdom through osmosis um because it really even uh, even for those of us who've been in the field uh you know a long time um I found in reading it, I was like, "Oh yeah, you know that, that this is really important, and, and this is it's good to go over this again." So, uh, like any any good how to book, it really is not just for um, beginning practitioners, but I think for people who've who've been at it. Um, I had the thought that um, after I read this book, because it's very conversational yeah. and um, has a personal touch, um, I was thinking what it would be like um, if you uh, were like. To be asked to be on a show like a, like Charlie Rose or something like that. Um, I don't know if you were at the APA a few weeks ago, but there was a a panel and it was like, what if What would you tell Charlie Rose about psychoanalysis? And I thought to myself, I'd really like to ask you this, so I'm I'm going to. If if you were on Charlie Rose and I'm not Charlie Rose, but if you were on Charlie Rose, what would you tell him? What What is psychoanalysis? I mean, how how would we uh, how would you describe it uh, for well. for a large for a larger audience? Yeah. Uh, I have no
0: idea, but uh, I'll try. I'm getting a little feedback there. I don't know if you can hear it. i the recording. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a way of understanding oneself, essentially. It's, uh, it's a way of talking to another person uh, in helping to understand oneself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, actually, I read an interesting article uh, just the other day uh, about, the evolutionary purpose of thinking. And <laughs> it was an, an article attempting to explain why uh, people's thinking is so poor actually on cognitive testing and so forth. It turns out that people's logical reasoning is terrible. <laughs> uh, and
2: <laughs>
0: that's, that's been a puzzle in the field for cognitive scientists for the longest time. And uh, this paper says, well, that, you know, the reason is because. Uh, it's not designed. Thinking is not designed to be logical. Thinking is designed to make a convincing argument to someone else. That's the evolutionary purpose of thinking. Yeah. And that's the re- and then, and it has a bias in it, namely it has you're biased towards your own thinking. Uh you're there's an overly positive bias bias towards the thoughts that you yourself have formulated.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh but Uh, and this also has been shown uh, by a lot of cognitive experiments, the thinking of a group is generally better than the thinking of a single person in order to solve a particular problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the arguments that one person makes are canceled out by the arguments that another person has made, and eventually something comes out of it that's better than any single person's thought. Mm -hmm. Of course, that doesn't include moments of uh, genius and inspiration, but that's a general rule. So that's the paper. And uh, I think that paper is applicable uh, to what we're talking about now. That is, uh, you can learn a lot about yourself by sheer introspection and thinking on your own, you know. But you learn more by thinking along with someone else. And that's what psychoanalysis is about. It's about uh, learning about yourself with the help of someone else who's uh, really totally invested in helping you understand yourself.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's the idea, I think, also that thinking uh, on your own versus thinking quietly versus thinking out loud. Yeah. Is a very, uh, very different experience, and actually putting,
2: yeah.
1: yeah, putting thoughts into words. I mean, there's the idea that. Uh, it creates um, new neural pathways, and we we have this understanding now. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's part of. I think thinking might thinking and speaking. Uh, we need to really champion um, the speaking aspect um, because that, yeah. that's what happens in psychoanalysis: new th- new thoughts develop and are put into words, right?
0: That's right, and it produces new neural pathways. Yeah, and uh, it has uh, very similar effects to the administration of psychotropic drugs. Ah,
1: well, I. You know what I wanted to talk to you. You have a chapter. I mean, the book has um, these small for people who um, haven't picked up the book yet and are thinking about it. it has small two five page chapters, and um, there's a chapter on uh, I think it's making a uh, let's see, um, not how to, uh, how to refer a patient for medication and. Um, I wanted to um to talk to you about this actually because I think that you have a very particular perspective um that you make uh both strongly and and softly um, about about psychoanalysis in a way versus uh medication um would you would you care to talk about your your thoughts about referring a patient for medication and about medication and psychoanalysis in general
0: well i mean I've said it uh as discreetly as I could in the chapter, <laughs> uh, and I'll try to repeat it discreetly uh, because it offends a great many people. Obviously, I mean, it it, uh, it offends, of course, the pharmaceutical industry, and it also offends people who uh, make their living, you know, uh, dispensing psychotropic medications. But essentially, it starts from the what I think is a fact, anyway, that. The database for the effects of psychotropic uh, medication is really corrupted, totally corrupted. Uh, and I give references where one can check that out. But I mean, you know, the, the most famous case was the article published by the uh, former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine who resigned because she felt that uh, the magazine was being corrupted by advertisements. Mm. Uh, and then wrote a paper about it and later a book about it. But, and So I give a number of references. There are two books out now that are really imperative reading for anybody who's considering psychotropic medication. Uh, the databases, uh, but even if you give it the benefit of the doubt, the uh, effects of uh, medication, most of the time, are just not that significant uh, when compared with the side effects. So, uh, that's not to say that, in certain cases, it's not valuable uh but you know uh statistics uh have to do with the general case, and uh generally, it seems to be uh not as effective as people have been led to believe by the enormous publicity and the enormous pressure the billions of dollars and the industry spends on advertising it and uh, promoting it to uh, physicians and so forth. Uh, and uh, Talking to people very often has a better, at least as good an effect if not a better effect, a certainly a better long-term effect and also it's minus all of the uh, sometimes quite atrocious side effects of mm-hmm. medications. So I would be very hesitant, it's not that I've never uh, had patients on psychotropic medication I have, but for the most part, uh, for me anyway, it works much, much better just talking to them and that includes really, really uh, severe cases, you know, people in psychosis, uh, uh, manic depressive disorder, schizophrenia, severe depressions and so forth. If you have the sufficient time to devote to them uh to talk to them, and you know when when you have an acute attack like that, uh you have to see everybody people every day
2: mm-hmm. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can do that uh and if you know how to deal with these things, then uh really uh generally patients get better uh even faster than with the medication and uh so I find that a preferable way to work. Mm-hmm. And if a patient needs medication, I think there are alternative medications that work as well and that are documented to work as well. There's a lot of uh, studies about that, Sami, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. which can be bought in any health food store, except you have to be careful what the source is. I mean, there are recommended sources for for procuring these things. Uh, So in brief, that's uh, my take on medication.
1: yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's quite. Um, I was thinking about uh, have we done ourselves um, as a profession potentially a disservice? Um, I use the word patient also in my my work, and I think about what's our wh- how that yokes us to a medical model, which the current medical model is. Uh, you know, very much involved with, you know, one's supposed to interface with the psychiatrist. Um, and I'm thinking, I don't necessarily want to talk to the psychiatrist. I'm working, uh, I'm I'm conducting an analysis here. Um, right. And I'm wondering if we should bring back the word analysand. I'm attempting. <laughs> I'm, well, a- I'm attempting to bring it back to, to, to sort of sever the, sever the tie. Um, analysand's
0: a good word. It's a little awkward, you know. It's funny, uh, right? Well, uh, it's, but... Uh, there are also, and this should be said in all fairness, there are, a, a, fair, a you know, a large number of psychiatrists who feel the same way I do and never prescribe medication. That's true. Uh, there's, uh, for example... Uh, James Gordon, who's a psychiatrist, wrote a book called Unstuck about treating depression without medication for the most part. And there are lots of people that I know in New York, you know, uh, psychiatrists who uh, don't prescribe medication for the, for the reasons that I've more or less uh, outlined. But obviously, this is a arouses heated discussions.
1: Absolutely, it, 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 it really it really does. And in fact, when I was thinking uh, for a new uh, clinician, someone just starting their private practice, um, yeah. you know, when they have a patient who, um, let's say, has a psychotic break,
2: yeah, uh,
1: you know, in
0: that's dur- the first thing they rush to, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It's yeah. A, and it's almost as if you know the the idea. You have a, a I loved. Um, Let's see. I underlined it here. It's um in um the book on in the chapter on how to do an initial interview, and you write um, and I'm going to quote you. It's analyzability does not reside within the patient. It is a function of a particular patient working with a particular analyst at a particular time. That's right. And that that is. I think that's a very beautiful and simple idea. Would you care to to elaborate on that? I think that it's it's well a, when I
0: when I was in training, you know, we all took courses in analyzability. That was a standard course that one taught in in all of the institutes at the time. Uh, As if uh, (laughs) it were a thing, right? And you could could do an interview and determine a patient's analyzability. But I mean, that was, uh, even at the time, that was a ridiculous idea, right? I mean, I thought it was ridiculous. A lot of the students thought it was ridiculous, but... uh, one couldn't speak up in class at that time about those things because it was clear that some patients were more analyzable by certain analysts than others. Right. And yet, I remember speaking with the director of the clinic at the most esteemed analytic institute in New York and probably in the country. And he stoutly maintained <laughs> don't, don't
1: say the name. <laughs> no, no,
0: I'm not going to say the I
2: name. Know.
0: He stoutly maintained. You know, and he was he felt earnestly about this. Yes. I'm not impugning anybody's uh right uh honesty or anything. Uh he said everybody who graduates from our institute should be equally capable of analyzing any patient. So he never tried to match patients uh, with analysts. He just assigned them randomly as they came up. Uh that seems absurd. <laughs> It still seems absurd.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you also suggest, and I think this is really extremely uh, important idea that uh, that uh, for a new practitioner, um, a new clinician, is that, the re- your, and I'll quote you again, it's a part of the same sentence, your reaction to the patient as well as the patient's reactions to you are crucial in determining whether the diet has a high or low probability of succeeding. Um, That's right. Yeah, because uh, patients. Some some people will say to me, "Well, have you ever have you ever had a patient that you um, you didn't want to work with?" <laughs> and the answer, at least my answer, is like, "Yes, there are some people I know I'm probably not the right person for." Sure. And
0: um, um, I, I try, you know, when I do an initial interview with a patient like that, uh, and, and I have that feeling, I try to direct them elsewhere.
2: Right you
0: know obviously without offending them in any way but,
2: uh,
1: right right uh, it's uh it's an inter- it's a very interesting sort of moment where you realize you don't want to reject the patient but sure. you you know that whatever is inside of you and whatever's inside of them is probably not going to be uh be helpful it's such a such a nice idea that we could analyze anyone um but yeah, it's not true. It's, <laughs> it's absolutely absolutely um i was uh, you know, a lot of um, new clinicians um, really struggle about pay- with payment. Um, I have, you know, young supervisees and they say, well, how do I set the fee and, and how do I collect the fee? And when I read your chapter on how to get paid for your work,
2: mm.
1: I had one question, because I didn't see this uh, addressed in the chapter. What do you do when the patient doesn't pay?
0: Well, uh, you know, uh, that's so rarely happened to me that uh I'd have to think about it, but
1: uh <laughs> you must you must' in- it really produce a very positive feelings
0: <laughs> well not, certainly not everybody i mean i've had had patients in tremendously negative transferences that lasted for years, you know so
2: mm. it's not
0: uh it's not that i uh, that everybody loves me at all in in the treatment. But, you know, it's very much, uh, well, I don't know if I can say this
1: or not. Uh, Maybe
0: I'll say it anyway.
1: Uh, It's just me. No, of course. We're on iTunes. There is a large. So uh,
0: we were discussing in class, I remember, a number of years ago uh, with, uh, uh, and somebody, uh, we were discussing a famous uh, theoretician whom I happen to know uh, and had some contact with and uh, somebody uh, and who, who, was, uh, who was teaching a lot about empathic reactions towards patients. So somebody in the class asked me, you know, he's so empathic. What does he do when a patient doesn't pay him? <laughs> right? Well, I had never thought of that, but the answer occurred to me immediately. I said, you know, knowing him. If you were his patient, it would never even occur to you not to pay him.
2: Huh.
1: It wouldn't
0: cross your mind.
1: <laughs> He's
0: just somebody that you don't not pay.
2: <laughs> but, but so,
0: so there was more there than just empathy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess, I guess, I guess he has some authority and empathy or something.
2: Something. <laughs>
1: yeah, uh, that, that's interesting because I mean, I think that a lot of, uh, I mean, things I hear are like, well, the patient, uh, the arrangement is that the patient pays at the end of the month. Let's say this is you know whatever the frame is, and they yeah. they pay at the end of the month, and they're to pay in a check, and this is the amount, and they forgot their checkbook, and the next time they come and they forgot their checkbook again. Yeah. And yeah. the next time they come and they forgot their checkbook again. Now, th- if this has not happened to you a lot, boy, I've really, <laughs> maybe I should come to you for supervision. But, uh, <laughs> but I've certainly experienced no, that, this.
0: That, you know, that happened years. to me. No, that certainly happened to me. Uh-huh. But I treat it like anything else, you know. I mean, uh, there's many, I mean, there's many, many reasons for that. So one, you would have to know what the particular patient is.
2: Mm-hmm. But lots
0: of patients are disorganized
1: that's why they're in treatment (laughs) and that's why they're in
0: treatment and you know if if also they don't show up regularly for appointments or they come at different times or they come late or whatever you know then you're dealing with disorganization and to treat it as if the patient were trying to somehow uh, secretly affront you you know by uh, not paying when it's part of the total so you have to for example Inquire, or at least have some understanding. Does this happen only with you and only in treatment, or is it, is it, does he not pay other people too, or does, does he not come to other appointments on time too, and so forth? Mm-hmm. If it's part of a general pattern of disorganization, then that's part of the treatment.
1: You know, mm-hmm. sure.
0: He's gonna he's gonna start paying you on time when he
1: gets better. Right. Right when an organization then, occurs
0: mm-hmm. yeah until then you just have to uh tolerate it <laughs> or,
1: or or go to a lot of go to a lot of supervision um to talk <laughs> to talk it through, um especially yeah. with beginning clinicians who are worried um about uh about making a living right i mean it's really uh, it's very complicated I know that um Erwin uh, Hirsch who we interviewed here was um talking about a, an article by um uh, Chris Bandini uh, from Contemporary Psychoanalysis on beginning one's career, um, yeah. essentially, and the financial uh, anxieties, um, and then, of course, how the analyst conveys or transmits those financial anxieties to the patient, who finally has a great moment, right? To <laughs> to pay you or not pay you, you know, dep- depending. But yeah. it's, uh, it's it's tough for I think for new clinicians to to manage that. Um, I was interested. You have. Uh, um, uh, two, two sort of questions that seem related emerged as I read the book, and one was I, about what are, what are the attractions um, and the, uh, w- what would draw one and what are the attractions to living um, and leading an analytic life? And on the other hand, what are the risks to the analyst in leading an analytic life? Um, because it seems that you know bo- both things. Both things are are taken up um, throughout yeah. the book. And I was wondering, would you talk? Would you talk about that? Those ideas.
0: Well, the attractions, you know, uh, at least for me, uh, are enormous. Uh, I've been practicing for more than fifty years, and uh, I'm just as interested in it now as I was the day that I started. And there aren't too many professions about which one can say that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Like I have lots of patients who are lawyers who are just waiting for the day that they can retire, you know, or doing other things. So that uh, if, if it's uh, something that you take to, it's wonderfully attractive because it's fascinating. And to be involved with something that's fascinating all your life, and also, you can practice it right until uh, the day you die, and even maybe a couple of weeks thereafter.
1: I mean, sure. Exactly. If too <laughs> if you, much, right. <laughs> you mean the joke about the dead analyst in the right. chair? <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: So that's
0: a terrific profession that you can practice for such a long time and love and enjoy. <laughs> and,
2: you know, and
1: yeah, that's that's uh that's it's really the the funny story. Like people say, well, I kept going and I didn't know he was dead, but I was continuing to talk, right? Yeah. Oh gosh. Um. But what about? I mean, I think that we may. Um. I know that certain certain schools of uh, psychoanalysis, people graduate from the institute, they terminate their analyses, and maybe they end up in a peer supervision group or something. Now, I, I tend to think of this as a like a some it's a profession that um you need to take very good care of yourself to um to involve yourself in it because the different transference states can be depending can be quite arduous and i was thinking um for new clinicians uh it's important to consider the risks and how to uh, the risks to yourself in in being an analyst yeah. um it's not for the faint of heart always is it you know right.
2: Yeah.
0: I think there's a lot of risk, especially, you know, if you're one of those analysts who takes on uh really disturbed patients. Uh, if if you take on uh, you know, patients with diagnoses like severe borderline or psychosis or uh, manic depressive disorder, schizophrenia or whatever severe depression, uh And if you actually try to treat it by analysis, right, Mm -hmm. then you're guaranteed to be uh, in a psychotic transference for a greater or lesser period of time. And that's enormously disturbing, Mm -hmm. both internally, you know, while you're doing the work, and externally uh, it disturbs your family life since you're, uh, you're in a... A disturbed state of mind for periods of time
2: mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh
0: now i happen to be lucky because my wife is also an analyst so uh we can help each other when things like that happen but i mean it happens and uh, uh i i emphasize in the book that when you're working with disturbed patients in a deep way that it's almost imperative to uh either get supervision or have a colleague with whom you discuss the case or a peer group or something like that. You need support. You can't really handle psychosis by yourself most of the time.
1: Mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, I think that you're uh, um, thinking about Handling psychosis and working analytically, um, you know, my my training is is a, from Spotnitz and Phyllis Meadow and modern psychoanalysis and I was really um, Interested um, that you also would consider working um, Analytically with uh, the psych the psychotic or schizophrenic patient. Um, did you want to say anything to? Um, uh, beginning uh, clinicians about about that work and about uh, thoughts you have about what what to look out for what to pay attention to
0: well look there are some people uh who want to do that and other people who don't Mm -hmm. and that's fine right the people who don't want to do it shouldn't right (laughs) Uh, because it's very difficult and uh,
1: some of us like the primary process (laughs) yeah
0: that's true yeah but the people who are interested in it right You really need help, and you need help from somebody who's had that experience. You know, you can't get it out of a book or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so if you take on a a very disturbed patient, then uh, you really need supervision by somebody who's accustomed to working with that level of disturbance. And, you know, if you do it two, three times, then you gain confidence. And the confidence is extremely important in making the treatment go well. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: No matter how bad things look or how scary it looks outside the treatment, you have some sense that there's a process going and that it's going to eventually work out. Right. If you just stick with it, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's really incredible, isn't it, that how... um how infrequently, at this point, in uh, at least in the in American, you know, culture, that we think of psychoanalysis as being appropriate um, well. for people with schizophrenia. It's almost like it's, it's as taboo a topic, I, I think, potentially as, yeah. as yeah. you know.
0: I mean, the drug companies have it all sewed up, right? They have this medication that works miraculously and so forth. But I would advise everybody to read uh, *Anatomy of an Epidemic*.
2: Mm-hmm. By Robert
0: Whittaker, uh, which has a good deal of research and something very important to say about uh, treating these patients, you know, and turning them essentially into chronic patients. So uh, mm-hmm. they live on medication for the rest of their life and really never get better.
1: Right, right. It's just maintaining a, a status quo. I, I right. think for them. Um, you. You suggest someplace, and I actually don't have. A, I'm not sure what chapter this comes from, but I jotted down the note uh, um, that uh, listening to the unconscious has, in some way, gone out of fashion, even in psychoanalysis. I think that that, that was your your suggestion, and I I find that a little heartbreaking. But I but I think it, there's truth to it. And what? Why? <laughs> why are we listening less to the unconscious?
0: Well, you know, I think that. Uh, in the in the current state of psychoanalysis, this is probably true generally. We're uh, reaping the harvest of our own sins, you know. Uh, there was <laughs> the unconscious when it was first discovered was so utterly fascinating, right? Yeah. Uh, to Freud and to his
2: students
0: and disciples right that they all spent their spare time analyzing each other's uh dreams and the unconscious meaning and so forth right and uh it got to be so you know that uh, uh they were so enthused about it uh that uh every cigar was really a penis right uh and they kind of lost sight of the fact that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. So, uh, that was one sin. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, I think that balance is all, uh, that some kind of balance between the internal and the external, between the conscious and the unconscious, between, uh, being a depth psychologist, And being a surface psychologist (laughs) is Mm -hmm. necessary Mm -hmm. uh, to to have a kind of sensible position and and not uh, be either at one extreme or the other, either denying really the unconscious in one way or another, or uh, thinking that that's the answer to everything. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: Nothing is the answer to everything. (laughs)
1: Right, um actually I think Neil Altman suggested in an interview I did with him recently um that psychoanalysis has in this country anyway kind of um uh you know chickens have come home to roost like we've we've done our we've done ourselves a, a disservice somehow, and I think he was referencing um sort of the psychoanalytic culture in the 50s and the 60s would would you say that that's the case i mean i
0: I would agree with that you know because i was uh, born in the in the psychoanalytic culture of the 50s and 60s and there were certain aspects of it tremendously admirable and certain were totally horrifying you know Mm -hmm. i mean it had gotten mechanized in the eyes of many Analysts, well-known analysts, you know, to the point where, you know, if the patient uh, said a word after they got off the couch, right, that was off limits. uh, uh, And that you didn't respond to people uh, like a normal human being, right? But Mm -hmm. uh, you had to make everything so totally neutral, which is a crazy idea anyway, because it's impossible to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, anybody who makes their offer so sterile that it's 100% neutral is already uh, illustrating some kind of mental perversion. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh,
1: <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> um, well, let me let me ask you a question, actually, about um, establishing sort of a a, a working frame um, or sort of the the parameters for for the work, because um, I think this is uh, certainly something that new clinicians. Um, Struggle with what? What? Who creates the frame? Does the analyst create the frame? Does the patient create the frame? Do we say we'll meet, you know, every week at this time? Is that agreeable? Do you have thoughts about um about creating the frame that new clinicians should should uh, you would encourage them to to consider? Um,
0: well, I don't know that I have anything at all uh, novel to say about it. I mean, generally, isn't it the analyst who creates the frame because the patient comes and. Some may know something about analysis. A lot of people don't know anything about it, but they're all waiting for you to explain, you know. Mm. And you try to explain, let's say, the frequency. You try to explain by the importance of continuity, you
2: know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
0: uh, that's generally something that strikes a sympathetic note because most people who come, have problems with continuity you know these days in our culture I mean that's one of the major issues that people are so fragmented the culture is fragmented the healthcare system is fragmented the educational system is fragmented everything is fragmented right and uh, so you're trying to create a situation with some continuity that will allow somebody to gain a holistic perspective on their life
2: you know. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Explain it that way. People uh, tend to understand why. It may be a practical question that people can't afford to come five times a week, but at least you know that more is better and that uh, you're trying to come as close to the ideal as you can, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and you illustrate that in your own life as an analyst. By trying to keep in touch with the patient and maintain continuity, you know you don't tout the importance of continuity and then go off on vacations and leave them to be by themselves for two two months. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't. Make, you've got to live
2: what you profess, right?
1: <laughs> right, I mean that well that's an interesting um I thought about about the frame I mean, I was thinking my my training is a little bit different, in that uh I ask the patient how often they would like to come, and some will say once a month and uh, and and my my training is to think that that's um probably all the contact they can tolerate, particularly a more regressed patient um but again continuity um I, I
0: wouldn't ask it. I mean, from my point of view, I wouldn't ask the patient how often they want to come because they don't know what's good for them. Uh-huh. I
2: see. I see. <laughs> well, that,
0: Everybody wants to come only once a month, right? If my analyst said, how often do you want to come? I would have said once a year.
1: <laughs> Is that right? So, so <laughs> well, why did you sure, I mean, did if
0: you... they can promise to change my life if I come once a year, <laughs> why, why, why come more often? <laughs> I see. But,
2: I see
1: so you so you agreed to the to a five day a week analysis and uh <laughs> because there was a suggestion and and it it was uh, a... right, you went to the person for treatment and with yeah. the hope that they would have an answer for how to how to get there, which is right,
0: uh, you know I mean people come because they're distressed, you know that's why we all came to analysis mm.
1: mm-hmm. yep, and you have a chapter on how to choose a personal uh analyst yeah which um I think is a, a really important chapter. Would you, would you care to say a little bit more about that? I mean, what prompted you to um, to include that? Actually,
0: um, well, I think I mean I think the advice that I give is rather poor. I mean, I I wish I could say more. That would be more helpful, but it's it's a start at thinking about uh, how one does that. I mean, I've seen I have seen to this day. Lots and lots of people choose an analyst because their office is close to where they live
1: <laughs>
0: now, uh-huh. that's insane
1: well, uh- that says a lot about that that analysis doesn't it <laughs> yeah, but I've seen lots of people do that
0: uh-huh. so I mean, you can say to them look if you if you had a a tumor right, and you needed a brain surgeon, would you choose the one that was closest <laughs> to your house?" <laughs> This is like choosing a brain surgeon. It's one of the most important things you ever do in your life. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> <What>? <laughs> it is. It is truly. Um, it is. It is pretty funny if you think about it that way. Yeah. Well, uh-huh. because
0: they happen to be on a panel or something. Oh well, there's that. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't make
1: any sense. You know? It's like Russian, the Russian roulette of psychoanalysis with the, with health insurance. It's like I like their name. <laughs> That's right. You
0: want to choose someone who will really help you because this is serious stuff. And furthermore, to be honest, and I try to be honest about this in the book, bad analysis can really hurt you. Not only not help you, it can hurt you. So right that's something to keep in mind
1: absolutely absolutely and people who have um you know early uh you know, disturbed um object relations are, are will probably be right at home with a <laughs> with an analyst who might be bad for them so it is that's right. it is tricky um one of one of the like i thought one of the most powerful chapters um in the book was on the um, working with the uh, sadomasochistic transference, and I thought it was great that you um, that you included it. Somehow it it, it jumped out um, uh, because of the getting into power struggles with patients and thinking about what that's about is something that new clinicians I think do very very often. You know, like yeah. and they end up. I, I know somebody who's who's going to take a patient actually who hasn't paid her. She's going to small claims court. I said, oh, bring in the law. What's the thinking here? Um, Isn't this a communication of some sort? Um, So could you say something about about sort of the sadomasochistic uh, transference for the new clinician?
0: Well, I think actually uh, those chapters are overrepresented in the book, but they are because that happens to be one of my specialties, Mm -hmm. and I've, I've written... Uh, two-and-a-half books on that subject. So,
1: What's I the half writing, book?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs>
0: there are chapters in all uh, I understand. three of the other books on, on this subject. And there was the original paper that I wrote with uh, my friend Lester Schwartz uh, about A Dream of the Marquis de Sade, which has become a kind of classic in the field yep. uh, about you know, about sadomasochism. So it's, it's something I've been interested in uh, for many, many years. So I tried to summarize everything in four pages,
2: which <laughs> is
1: manifestly <laughs> impossible. But, <laughs> but it's kind I of a tour de force. I, I thought, I was like, okay, all right, here it is. It's all right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, I, I said, he's really he's really going to try and do this, Okay.
0: Yeah, Would you have to have arrived at a certain age and lost some of your marbles to try to do something like that? Or <laughs>
1: anyway,
0: just not care anymore. You
1: know. <laughs> well or just say go back to read the article, hello, right? Or <laughs> go back to my books. But um but I think that, you know, it, it's it, it was i was glad to i was glad to see it uh in this book because I think that um it is one of the trickiest um it's sort one of... of the
0: trickiest things right you know if if you work with very narcissistic or borderline patients uh or more severe patients you you're bound to get into sadomasochistic transference yeah it's one of the di- more difficult things especially for uh beginning people who uh really get lost, and they don't know what to do, and uh, that's where it's really important that they have some supervision from someone who really understands the issues. You
1: know? Right, 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 that it's okay to want to get rid of the patient without getting rid of the patient.
0: Yeah. Right. <laughs> For, right, and that's all of that is to help in understanding what's
1: going on. Mm-hmm, know? mm-hmm, yeah. Um you um I I laughed as I read um how to manage the telephone. Um it's a, a teeny chapter. <laughs> I think it's a page and it's like a page and a half. <laughs> and, yeah. and, sort of like the Winnie the Pooh chapter. It's like a tiny little, you know, child story. And uh and I was Reading about your I think you wrote that you've had three you had three different analysts and two answered the phone during the session and one didn't and the one that answered the phone ended up being uh the analyst too you thought really
0: um uh, It helped me the most helped you even, the most. Even though it bothered me a lot when he answered the phone. <laughs> well, and I and I don't. I try never to answer the phone. You
1: don't answer the phone, you Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well i I've, I've always uh, i've never not had a phone answered in my uh, zillions of years of analysis um i don't actually myself answer the phone unless i know that there's an emergency um but but what what do you think is uh, why does an analyst answer the phone during a patient session? I mean, I don't think it's it's right or wrong. I just think it's it's a fascinating um, it's a cultural byproduct of certain schools of psychoanalysis. But what was your sense when the when the analyst answered the phone? What, what was he, Why well, was that happening? <laughs>
0: my my good analyst who answered the phone, you know, I asked him about it, and he said, you know, that he had the kind of practice where he felt it was very important to keep in touch with patients and that they should have access to him all the time. He said, I'm not going to really talk to them. He said, but I just pick up the phone and tell them, yes, their appointment is really for three o'clock and I'll see you then. And uh, so it was a way of uh, maintaining contact. And that was a good thing, I think, you know, although I wouldn't have chosen to do it that way. Right. But I think the the, the thought behind it was something that I could agree
1: with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It also is um interesting. The few times that I have answered the phone, some patients are like, Oh, that's okay, I don't mind. Some are like, What the hell? <laughs> you know, and it's it's often an interesting uh an interesting moment, um in yeah. in the treatment. Um if you're willing you know, if you're willing to do it, you have to, you know, of course be willing to contend with the aggression that may uh may come your way. Um sure. you know, for for taking that. Um, and
0: of course, nowadays you get the patients who answer their phone. <laughs> I'm sure you've had that <laughs>
1: No, actually, that one I haven't had.
0: Oh, well, I've had that frequently. <laughs> they,
1: they say, Excuse me. <laughs> I'm not so sure well, I like that most, interpretation. Let me pick up the phone. <laughs> of them,
0: most of them just turn off the ringer, but some of them actually have extended conversations. <laughs> And uh, that's interesting, you know, if you can take the attitude that that's part of the analysis and that that has some meaning and that eventually we'll get to discussing that and so forth, uh,
1: then uh, it's okay. Right. Chris for the mill. Um, You don't have in the book, or at least I I read it. I think I read it twice. Um, I didn't see anything in the book about um, eating. Drinking and the use of the couch or not um, And I was wondering uh, eat, like the patient coming in eating and drinking um, During the session thoughts about that about and any thoughts about the use of the couch um. Yeah, I have,
0: uh, About eating and drinking I don't have many thoughts I mean people don't normally come in and spread out a feast and eat a whole meal
1: now that I have seen <laughs> Oh, all right, so it's i mean it that wouldn't
0: bother me a lot. I mean, it would be something that I would make i would flag it in my mind. that's an interesting thing to think about I wanted to do that, but I certainly wouldn't prohibit anything like that you mm-hmm. know i mean i don't care i have i deliberately have uh you know, tables and so forth, that I don't care if people spill stuff on it or not. You know, they don't have to be careful. So uh, it's okay if they bring coffee or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. That doesn't uh, bother me, obviously. At some point, you hope to be able to analyze that. But uh, it's. I don't think it's crucial one way or the other. Uh, usually that stuff drops away mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. after a while about using the couch, I do have something to say, you know, I uh, I, I feel that for most people most of the time, it's, it's the most helpful uh, way to do things, so uh, if it were my preference, you know, if it were up to me, uh, all the patients would be on the couch, uh, they're not because it's not up to me, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but if they ask me, I tell them, you know, and I try to explain why, Uh it's not true for everybody, you know, and certainly when you're dealing with very disturbed patients, usually it's quite important to be flexible about it so that they can uh, sit up or lie down depending on how they feel and depending on the state of the transference. When the transference is really wild, you know, and they think that you're about to kill them or something,
1: it's better that
0: they sit up. (laughs)
1: Better for everyone, yeah. They can check check out
0: reality, you know, better. But uh, when they've been reassured that really you're not uh, Frankenstein after all, they can get back on the couch Mm -hmm. if they want to. Right. I wouldn't insist on it, you know. But by that time, they've generally seen the value of it, and they're able to alternate between using it and not using it, depending on their own... State of mind, the depth of regression, what they want to talk about. Some things are a lot easier to talk about when you're not facing someone, you know. Topics that are filled with shame uh, are much harder to deal with if you're face to face with
2: someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Any uh other thoughts about the benefits of using the couch? I mean I, I think you've you've covered a lot of ground, but anything else come to mind?
0: Well it get it, it certainly puts you in a deeper state of regression, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh that's either desirable or not desirable depending on how you feel about analysis, you know.
2: Right.
0: I mean I feel that uh, you know, uh, regression to dependence, using Winnicott's phrase, is a very important thing for many people, you know, for people who don't have, who haven't had a healthy beginning and who have problems with trust, problems with intimacy problems uh, with continuity of experience, problems, deep problems of identity, of feeling real, of feeling a false self, and so forth. All of those issues are better handled uh, on the couch because you go to a greater depth of regression. That's where the stuff is.
1: Mhm and you know it 's interesting because I know so many uh, people who are trained as analysts are not using the couch, and i i 'm trained to use the couch, and I, so i 'm always quite surprised and there seems to be an interest in revealing something about the analyst, or using the analyst in a certain way, or that the analyst is there's there's a move toward uh, to democratize. Uh, it's very American move to democratize things. Um, and uh, I. Why,
0: why is sitting up more democratic than lying down? A very good question.
2: Um, I don't see that at all.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've asked that, uh, but I, I haven't. Um, you know, the fantasy of creating um, equality through uh, structural arrangements is, um, is a, a good, a good one, I think. But <laughs> I think it still remains a bit you of a fantasy. You can't
0: really create equality by any kind of arrangements in the real world. Equality is a feeling that comes from inside. You know, I mean. Uh, if you have identical chairs for the patient and the analyst, that doesn't make one feel more equal than the other. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: that that's uh, like just like think good thoughts and have a chair just like mine, you'll feel fine, right? No, it yeah. doesn't work. I mean yeah. I have a I happen
0: I have identical chairs because I think it's a good idea, but I mean uh
1: visually you I, mean I <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've often had patients, right, who, who on a first interview, people I don't know, they come in, they want to sit in my chair.
2: Right?
1: Ah. <laughs> it's okay with me. I don't care what chair
2: I sit <laughs> in. <laughs>
1: I really, I really appreciate your flexibility. It, it, it comes across very strongly in the book. Your willingness to sort of, you know, go. <laughs> go with where the patient is is at but still
2: you uh, to ma- go
1: with where the patient yeah, yeah, is what, at Yeah, what choice team. do you have right but yeah, still if you want to ma- help them yeah that's right but you still maintain sort of a you know an analytic interest in in the, in their yeah, their what it's about yeah that's right it's i really loved uh, i love the flexibility that is conveyed um uh in the book and clearly in uh, talking to you. So we're at at 50 minutes and cha- and uh, a couple of seconds. Um so it's time to bring the interview to a, a close. Is there anything else that you just wanted to to say or you know about the book, about psychoanalysis that that you uh
0: No, not really. <laughs> just want to thank you for being a good interviewer. <laughs>
1: As opposed to a letting bad one, me, <laughs> letting
0: me shoot off like that. Oh, go! That I, is, I, yeah.
1: We don't. We never get to do this as analysts. We don't get to just talk unless we're in front of a conference with our colleagues. It's like. That's, you know, it's it's it, this is this is fun. Um, it's meant to be uh, pleasurable, and I, I hope that that it was. So I want to um, thank uh, Dr. Sheldonbach for joining us um, for uh, this interview and new books in psychoanalysis regarding uh, the how-to book for students of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Music.